Welcome to Word is Truth. This is Doug Presley. It is 10-6-2021, and we're ready to begin our worship service. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for life, health, and strength. We thank you for assembling us this evening. We pray for wisdom as we open your word. And Father, also we want to ask uh, for traveling mercies for those who are traveling and also, Father, for those who are sick, especially especially Dad, who is ailing at this moment, asking that you uh, comfort him, heal him, whatever you it is according to your will, we pray uh, for him as well. And others in our, our, our congregation and family relationships, we, we know that if it's on your heart, Father, uh, you know you know it all. So all this we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. All right. So we are have normally been studying in Romans chapter 9. And I think the verses in question today are 28 and 29. What's good about Romans at this point is we kind of know what is going on there. So the verses are pretty much falling in place. So it's not um, that we're trying to conquer something or comprehend it. We pretty much understand where what's happening and why. So that helps quite a lot as we're interpreting passages of scripture. So, before we get into Romans, I'm, there may be a question on the table. It shouldn't take too long, I don't think. Let's see if we can dig in. Um, the floor is open. Well, uh, Pastor, um, uh, we talked about this before, but I'll present it again. And uh, I guess the uh, most intense time in all of human history, uh, I believe, is when the Lord, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, paid for the sins of the entire world. So I read basically all the endings of all the Gospels. And, um, you know... Um, there's a lot of things that accompanied Christ's resurrection that I found out um, that I had forgotten that, uh, you know, dead saints jumped up out of there. You know, they were resurrected, uh, came out of their graves. But specifically, the question I want to ask is God the Father, during that intense three-hour period, period when the Lord our Lord was screaming as the sins of the entire world he bore in his body. Uh, was God the Father uh, able uh, to support him? Or did because of the Lord Jesus Christ and his humanity was bearing the sins of the world, did the Father... Uh, remember the Lord Jesus Christ screamed for three hours, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? 
So that's my question. Did God the Father support our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on this three-hour period because of who he is and, and his deity is as God? Could he have any part in it? Yeah, so, so that is an intriguing question, one that we would have to depend on Scripture to really focus our attention on. Um, so just giving it some thought, um, I think, as you were talking, we were talking earlier, and so we discussed there's two sides of who Christ is. There's one side, obviously, is he's God, and nothing can ever change the fact that he is God. He can't be judged for sins as God. He can't receive the imputation of sins as God. He can only receive him as a man. So, um, but the person who, and this is another telling tale of who Christ is in his person, is that when Christ was being judged for our sins, the person of Christ in his humanity, he did not have deity. Deity could not submit to sin or be judged for sin in any way. So truly Christ was a man. He was true, true humanity, as we would say. And so a couple things to think about um, when we think about God, and I know there are some phrases out there that God cannot look upon sin, so God had to turn his back on Christ and all of that, which I don't necessarily follow. Um, and there may be metaphors in scripture that talk about the righteousness and holiness of God. And uh, But remember, when we think about who God is, if everything there is, including the universe exists in God. There's no outside of God. So even if we were to look at the lake of fire, it is a place. For some, it is a destination. They are headed there. So after judgment, they're going to be thrown into the lake of fire. Lake of fire is a place. Where is that place? It is also a place in God. So when we think about um, when God created human beings and angels with free will, he knew that there were going to be people and angels who were uh, resistant of God's sovereign will or his just his will, his righteous will. And so they would fall out of uh, righteousness with God. That They would lose their perfection. So I'm not going to go too long on this point, but what my point is, yes, there will be people who will be disobedient, and God knew about that. God knew that he was going to have to judge them, and he already prepared a place for those beings who wanted to exercise their free will. And he gave them choices, and they had choices to make. So... No one is outside of God. God cannot turn his back on anybody when it comes to this. But what we can say is that there are two sides of God. We can talk about God from 
the standpoint of those who are justified. Those who are justified, meaning they don't violate God's righteousness and they don't violate his justice. So the, the next thing, it depends on where in human history or angelic history they were. So it, it depends on what their status is, what their calling is. We could talk about Jews and Gentiles for human beings, and we can talk about the church. But for angels, we know there are elect and fallen angels. We don't know much more about angels than that. So God does not turn his back on those who go to the lake of fire. They are experiencing a side of God that we call judgment. And we, we would want to put another word in front of that, eternal judgment. These people, or angels, are experiencing eternal judgment. Why? Because they refused God's offer of grace. Whatever that may have been for angels, we don't know. But we do know a lot about what it is for mankind. So we know that those who refuse to, it says the wrath of God will remain on them. Wrath, again, is a metaphor. God is not raging in anger against people. He's just, that's just not God, it's not the will of God that he, but he's expressing his judgment upon, that he has to, he's against uh, what they are for. And, and as I said, everything exists in God. Lake of Fire exists in God. Universe exists in God. Everything exists in God. There is no turning the back on on who God is. So, if I took you to Isaiah fifty three, here's here's the thought. Um, so fifty three says, verse four. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. Now, now here it is. How, how did he take our pain? It was the Father who, who imputed all of our sins to Christ. He didn't just impute them and say, okay, you have the sins. Let me turn my back because I can't, I can't witness you anymore. That's not it. He then, after he uh, imputed the sins of the world to Christ, he had to punish Christ for those sins. So it says, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. So that's so he said, surely he, we, he took up our, our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him. In other words, this is not the truth about it, but this is what we thought when we saw Christ on the cross, as you say, screaming for three hours. And this is true. He, I'm not saying as you say it is not true. It is true. He was screaming for th literally, roaring, says the scriptures. It says, people say, well, he's, he's punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But then verse 5 clears it up. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Uh, let's see. By his wounds... We are healed. Let me just make sure we're okay. Yes. Okay. So, so think about that. 
And this is where people get this healing stuff from. You know, they say, oh, you go to Isaiah 53. It says the healing is in the atonement. Healing is referring here to reconciliation. I hope we, you guys remember this. And this is it's not what is, you know, that somehow the atonement covers our healing. That's not true. This is talking about the work of Christ, the fact that he was judged for our sins. We are estranged from God, just like our wound is open. So Christ is like the bond, the salve that heals or brings that, draws that wound together. That's what he's talking about here. It's just another analogy of how we're reconciled with God through the work of Christ. He was he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, not his, like in verse 4, what people thought, but for ours. And, and by his wounds, we are healed. We are drawn together with the Father, to, with God. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, there it is, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ bore our sins, like Peter said, in his own body on the cross. How did that happen? The Father is the one. So God didn't, this was part of the Father's plan, that he not only impute the sins of the world to Christ, but that he punished Christ. He didn't turn his back. He had to be punishing of him. So, so what about God did Christ see? He, he knew that this was part of, the part that he was going to have to go through. This is why, uh, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as your will be done. So he knew God the Father was going to do this. He knew this was going to be. So yes, the Holy Spirit, the Bible talks about that in Hebrews, by, his, by the Spirit, he offered himself on the cross. He had, uh, he, the this ministry of the Spirit is all he could have. Uh, in order to withstand the punishment of the sins of the whole world, being the last Adam. If we skip on down to verse 10 in Isaiah 53, it says it right here, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. Now, so this part here is to say it. Lord's will means he was pleased to do this, meaning I think uh, this is interesting that if we look at 10 there, the King James used to say it this way, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And that's really what it is to say. It was the Lord's will. This was part of the plan of, of the Father in order to crush him, to bruise him. And he hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. So, so I'm going back to NIV. That was King James. But the will of the Lord is part of the Father's plan. So no, he didn't turn his back on him. He turned to judgment. He turned to the judgment side of himself on Christ. Now, just like what will happen in the lake of fire, will, will all of the people in the lake of fire how will they fare? They will experience the eternal judgment side of God. What about the people who are justified? They will experience the eternal blessing side of God. God, They will live with God forever and whatever calling 
they exist in. As I said, whether Jew, Gentile, or church. But yet, every creature there is will have to deal with God. And this is why there is such a thing as a lake of fire. There is no place you can hide from God or get away from God. Or once you get to the lake of fire, you can say, finally over. Okay, I don't have to spend my time with God, but uh, I'm, I'm off on my own. No. Forever. God is going to be a part of our experience. And not only does God uh, uphold us, sustain us, everything we are is because of God. If there's no God, there's no us. We can't exist apart from God. The life that we have is dependent upon God. So there is no apart from God or God withdrawing himself from us or in, in some way. That's not it at all. In fact, it will, even for the people in the lake of fire, if we were to use the metaphor to fire, how does that fire keep burning? That's the power of God that keeps the fire burning. But I don't believe in a literal fire. But I believe in actual judgment. And it is God's judgment on those people that is maintained. The intensity is maintained forever and ever and ever. Whatever it is, it's bad. You're talking about a lake of fire and people in it. And the smoke of their torment ascending up forever and ever. And there is no rest, day nor night, for those who are in there. That's bad. Whatever it is. So we don't want that. <laughs> Let's just say we don't want that. And so when you think about every... You, you broaden your concept of who God is and fact that everything there is exists in God. You don't, God can't, God doesn't say, wow, sin is so bad, I can't look at it. That's not, that's not it at all. God knew, he always had a plan for how he was going to deal with sin and what he was going to do with sin. And he did, he did, he judged it. We're reading some of it right now as we speak, speak these words. So I will pause briefly. There's more I, I could say, but uh, I will pause and then we'll get a little time for Romans. But Fred, I wanted to know if that at least begins to answer. I think, I think that uh, the uh, scriptures here in Isaiah, uh, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. So he's, you know, this is the plan of God. And I like the... Uh, the real analogy you use of hellfire, and um, you know that's in God. That's that place is found in God and maintained by yes. God. Yes. Absolutely. So I like. Uh, I, I certainly understand um, what the scriptures say, and I see exactly what you're saying. There's no way he turned his back on sin. Uh, and this is something he really was probably looking at intently because uh, this was all in the plan. Yeah, he was actively judging it. <laughs> he was certainly not, he, he was not uh, distant from it. He was actively involved in judging the sins. So, anyway. Uh, thank you for that. Yeah, thanks for your question. I appreciate that. Um, listen, 
this and there's more that could be said and we we could talk more later as we do and more questions come up and ideas so we're going to head into romans i know we got about a half hour it's probably all we need to go through these passages um so one of the passages romans 9 28 was covered it's really part of what we covered last week and so is the next verse which because it's all really talking about the same thing so let's take our time and go through Romans 9, 28 and 29. It says, For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously. Unless the Lord Almighty has left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been like Gomorrah. And you should all have notes. We have seen God's judgment on his people, Israel. In all this, we realize the mercy of God, and yet we can see the stern hand of discipline. In all of Israel's ups and downs, God chose a time to introduce his eternal purpose. Quote, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive Adoption to Sonship, Escalations 4, 4, and 5. Looking back, we can see God's perfect timing. Looking forward, we, can, we, can, we should know that God will continue to work out his purposes according to his perfect timing. No matter what we read about Israel's judgment and its severity, Israel has a future and purpose in God's plan. So let's look at these verses one at a time. Verse 29, uh, actually uh, verse 28 first, which is, For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. The context of Israel, the context is of Israel's judgment. We've been dealing with this context for several verses now. We have seen judgments in Israel's history, and there is still more to come. When I say we have seen, if you are a student at all, a little, even a little bit of the Old Testament, then you know that God had to judge Israel in the past. You know about captivity in Babylon. You know about the three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know that the reason why you have that story is because of uh, you know, what happened with the, the King Nebuchadnezzar when they were uh, slaves, basically, in the kingdom of Babylon. So, so all of this is, it, it, you know, Old Testament, and it's riddled with judgment. So this is, this is Israel's history. All of us know about it whether we understand uh, you know, some of it or don't know the full extent of it, that's okay. We do know in Israel's history, there is judgment. Point B, so far, this is what we have in our context. Israel questioned God about his sovereign choices. That's what happened. I mean, when God, Israel was fine, even though they, were, they weren't fine because they were being disciplined left and right prior to this. In fact, they were still under partial discipline from Rome. Rome had to allow Israel certain privileges. 
wasn't that Israel said, hey, God gave us this as a nation. No, they were still under the thumb of Rome. In fact, who are they paying taxes to? Rome. And this is where we have Matthew and Zacchaeus and all the different tax collecting uh, stories is because they were collecting taxes for Rome. So Israel is still under Rome's authority. under, uh, and, and so as a result, they really, even though Christ came at a time of Israel, uh, they had some independence, and that was only by permission of Rome. So, so, so when in this verse says, so far, this is point number B, whereas so far Israel questioned God about his sovereign choices. And they, they, they did. When God turned and chose the church, and he put Israel on pause, they didn't like it. So God had to remind Israel, hey, you, you are formed as a result of my sovereign choices. And Israel made some I'd say some serious blunders because they were trying to get in the way of God accomplishing his eternal purposes. When it says, you know, we read in Romans 11 last week, uh, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sakes. But as far as the election is concerned, they are beloved because on account of the patriarchs. So we read that last week. But just think about that. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies. Israel is an enemy of God here? Think about the patience of God in this. And when we think about God, what's his attitude? He, he tells us to love our enemies. That seems very strange to us. But God does that with Israel. Israel, is, they're the ones that put Christ on the cross. If you think about Israel, they're the ones who dogged all of the apostles and brought persecution to them and death to almost all of Christ's followers. Just like the, Romans 11 is just like it, what it was. They are enemies. <laughs> Watch out for them because they're, even though they're part of God's eternal purpose, right now they're enemies. And I don't think Israel is a friend of the church even now. I really don't. I, I know there's a whole movement to try to restore Israel and, and you know, so forth and so on. But God's going to handle all of that. He's going to take care of that for us. We, don't have, we can't do it. So anyway, if you look at these verses I got here, is where Israel, these are some of the th times where Israel has objected. I'm going to turn to one just so you can get the context of what I'm saying. And so Romans 8. And 31 through 34, here's what it says. And this is all for the sake of Israel. After he, he said this about us, God foreknew us, he predestined us, we conformed with the image of his son. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, they also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. He's talking about the church. But then Israel, this is him, Paul, reaching back to Israel. He says, what then? Shall we say in response to these things, if God is for us, who can be against us? And who can be against us? Who? Well, the Jews. Because right? that, that's who Paul has in mind, because they object to all that he just said. And then 
Paul gives two of the only people, the only ones who could object, and it would be the Father, and it would be Christ. So he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? So it's not the Father. He's the one sacrificed his son so that his eternal purpose could go forward and graciously give us all things. Certainly wouldn't be him. So then verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. There it is. God is the one who put us in a right relationship with him. Right? It, it didn't have anything to do with Israel or the law or any of that. Verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Well, we know who. Again, it's Israel. It's those Jews who hate the fact that God is saying, hey, we're, you're on pause, and now I'm calling out many sons in the glory. I'm calling them from Jews and from Gentiles, all in one body. Well, we know who it is. So, so verse 34, who, is it, who then is the one who condemns? No one. No one can do, their condemnation goes nowhere but to the ceilings of the places they are saying it. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life. In other words, that's approval by the Father. And is at the right hand of, of God. That's the place of highest honor. And is also interceding for us on our behalf. So certainly it's not Christ. He's for us. So then it goes into all of these things. What? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Can anybody do it? No. The love of Christ is a reference to the Father's eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And you could go through all verse 37, knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So there's a lot there. To consider, we have these famous verses. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, what you need to know is this is not just a declaration of God's love for us. And this is a declaration of why God will never change his mind about calling us and stepping away from Israel briefly. They, their accusations against God are wrong and the church stands. What's going to happen to Israel? Let's go back to our notes. We're going to talk more about judgment. Okay. Because that's what God is talking about to them. So also, if you go to 9, 6, and 11, 1, you see the same type of questions. I'm going to go to 11, Romans 11. I ask then, did God reject his people? There, he's, same questions, right? That these Jews have in their mind that God rejected. And Paul's answering the question, by no means. In other words... If God forbid, I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham and from the tribe of Benjamin. Did God, so God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. So, so he's going to go into the reasoning as to why. 
Paul is a Jew, and he is part of the church. God didn't reject him. Paul was chosen to be in Christ before time began. And he's recognizing that. Anyway, let's keep going in our notes. Anyway, you see, so far I say Israel, they question God's sovereign choice here. That's huge. You know who else did that? Pharaoh. He questioned God. He says, no, I'm not going to let, let Israel go and be a nation under you. No way. They're my slaves, and I'm keeping them, and there's nothing you can do about it because I'm Pharaoh. I'm the most powerful person in the, in the universe. This is how they, they thought them, of themselves as God. And, and God showed Pharaoh and his armies, his mighty armies, what his power was like. Point C. Ultimately, God explained that he has the right to execute his plan, purpose, and will, and nothing will deter his purpose. So that's what, so when you said, what can separate us? Nothing, neither, whether it's persecution or famine or sword or you name it, whatever it is, nothing can separate us from this eternal purpose of the Father. Nothing. So, he has a right, and God is exercising his right to have a plan in the first place and then to create all things around it and to accomplish what he wants to do. God is determined to do that. So point D then, God reminds Israel of their history of disobedience and judgment. So we read, uh, let, let's read Isaiah 28. 21 through 23. So this is it's interesting uh, that he says it this way. Isaiah 28, 21 through 23. Let's read the text first. It says, The Lord will rise up as he did at Mount Parism. He will rouse himself as in the valley of Gibeon to do his work. His Listen to this his strange work and perform his task, his alien task. So this is considered what, this is, this is really strange. Why? Because God has to judge his own nation, the nation that he himself formed through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Now, God has to bring judgment. He has to allow other na another nation to come in and to ravage and destroy Israel. And that's why it's called here his strange work. Now, for, for God fighting as a nation, other nations, at, you know, that attack Israel or God wants to conquer certain land, all of that is not considered his strange work. But when God has to judge his own people, it's his strange work. Sort of like what we were talking about earlier, where Christ has to judge, uh, Father has to judge Christ, his own son, his only begotten son. And yet, what does he do? He has to judge him. That's a strange thing to talk about. How he, his, the sins of the world were imputed to Christ and judged. Verse 22, now stop your mocking or your chains will become heavier. 
The, the Lord, the Lord Almighty has told me a destruction decreed against the whole land. Listen and hear my voice. Pay attention and hear what I say. This is to me the most important thing for them. Verse 23. Because he's telling them, listen up. Stop mocking. Your change will become heavier. Listen to his voice. Pay attention. When a, and then he goes into this analogy, which I'm not going to get into at this point. But you could read it. All of this goes right here along the lines of what we're talking about. And that's discipline for Israel. Why is Paul bringing up all this stuff? It's because of that fact of what we're talking about, the discipline. We'll get into that when he quotes the next verse. Point E, let's move forward. Stand by. Uh, yeah, so we'll get into that as we move into the next verse. So back to our notes. And uh, so point E, after the church is caught up, God will finish the work of judgment and will be and, and we will see the end of human history in 1007 years. Part of that judgment is going he's going to continue to judge Israel. They will be purged. God does see human history as Jews and Gentiles. Obviously, the church is a part of that now. But once the church leaves here. We're not of the earth, uh, we're not of this world, and we have a different calling altogether, but yet the, things will continue to work out on this earth. Now, a, part, thousand, a thousand of those years is Christ literally reigning on this earth. So the seven years is the tribulation period. So, yeah, things, like it says, the Lord's going to carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. Yeah, it's just 1,007 years. And this is right after we're caught up to, together with, with the, those who are uh, alive and, and the dead are caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. Point number two, it is just as Isaiah said previously. And this is what Isaiah said, unless the Lord Almighty has left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been like Gomorrah. And this is uh, the next verse. But again, it's point A is in keeping with the context of judgment. The apostle quotes again from Isaiah, this time verses nine. If we look at Isaiah and so when you look at these verses, don't be afraid to read. If you're not sure what is being spoken of here, read around it a little bit. I don't have to read the whole thing here, but I'll read a little bit of it. 9 says, Isaiah 1, 9, this is where Paul is quoting from. Unless the Lord Almighty have left us some survivors, which we call, what, remnant, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been like Gomorrah. So even if we stop at this verse... There is nothing noteworthy, noble here to say about Israel. Because God, I mean, he took Israel out of, he carved Israel out of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's where he made it. But Israel is not some exemplary nation. They did a lot of bad things. I'm just going to read some of this stuff. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah, the multitude of your sacrifices. What are they to me, says the Lord? 
I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and of fattened of of and of the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incest, your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. So I'm, I, there's more you could read. If you read the whole first part of Isaiah, wow, you can get some rough statements from God about Israel. He's talking about Israel. But point B, God, and in notes, God always preserved a remnant and judgment was not final. It was not final. So when I read Romans, go back to Romans 11, 2 through 5, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. This is what Elijah said. He's the only one left, and I'm going to die. Woe is me. Woe is going to happen to Israel. Right? And, and what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself. 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so Paul says, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So he's talking about now, I'm a Jew, and look, I'm I, I'm in the church now. I'm no, Even though in the church there's no longer any Jew, but still, Paul's saying, God didn't just abandon or turn his back on his people. That he, that's what he said in 11.1. Uh, I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means, no way. So we said it before, anybody in Israel, right now, anybody who is a Jew can uh, come and believe in Christ and they will be a part of the church. So point C in our notes, God, uh, Israel could have been annihilated. I mean, according to what he's saying, we could have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. That's, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. So they could have been annihilated and the Jew could have been erased from human history, just like many other nations and civilizations. And it's true. Go back and look in the Bible and see the Jew is probably the oldest uh, nation and the oldest people that continues to keep their heritage intact from all of those thousands of years. And it is not because of their strength and endurance. It is because of God preserving who they are. And the fact that their culture continues to this day. God will continue to preserve their lives. All of their contemporaries, almost all of them, are gone off the scene. Point D. Sodom and Gomorrah are given as an example of God's 
judgment. Now, here I'm going to, for sake of brevity, we're going to, uh, you read some of these verses, and, and I'm just rehearsing some of the things that happened with Sodom and Gomorrah. If you remember Abraham and he negotiated with God, if there are 50, if there are 40, if there are 30, if there are 45, if there are, you know, he, he went all the way down. And God said, sure, I, I'll do it. So if you wanted to read that, I'm leaving it here for you, but we're going to move forward. So the tenor of judgment here in this context is large. So that speaks to me. It tells me something. It says, look, Israel, you better watch out. Beware, because you are standing in the way of God trying to execute his eternal purpose. That's when it says your enemy, that's what it means. You're not just our enemies, you're God's enemies. And what is God trying to do? He's trying to execute his eternal purpose. So it's almost just like what Pharaoh was trying to do. He, Pharaoh said, no, I'm not letting the people go. Point E, there are many Jews that accepted Christ and his eternal purpose in this age where it is now being revealed, right? It, so if we look at uh, Ephesians 2, 14 through 19, it speaks to that. I'll just read it. Ephesians 2, 14 says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two really one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, Jews and Gentiles. And here, for through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners or strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. This is, God is, right now, this is what the opportunity is, the calling right now for people who are in this world. And then closing point F, we may have been former Jews or Gentiles, but once we are in Christ, there is neither, and this is, quote, neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's Galatians 3.28. So I would just, as we continue with these verses, we're going to see God's judgment upon Israel and what's happening with Israel. Part of it, I mean, the fact that they we had A.D. 70 already. There was lots of judgments throughout Israel's history. And we even saw uh, A.D. 70 very closely here as well. So what we, we want to know from these verses is why God wrote uh, or preserved for us Romans chapter 9. What does it say to us? And I would hope that you are able to form an answer to those questions. What are these verses talking about? But from all of our 
back and forth here in these verses. I'm hoping that now you can start looking at these verses and having understanding as to what is actually being said and why it is being said. The what, well, you can just read it, but the why, you need to have a little bit of understanding about the mystery and how God is working things out in this age. So we're going to have to close. I know we're past our time, but I certainly appreciate everybody, um, their presence here. We could not have done it without you. Thank you so much for, for joining. Let's, let's uh, bow our heads as we close. Thank you, Father. We're so glad that we have come and we're moving toward the end of Romans 9. And thank you for clarity for the understanding that is there, right there in the passage, in the context. Father, we, we know that this is a source of confusion for many Christians. We pray that this would be used in some way that to others, that they may understand your purposes, and not only that, but your sovereignty and how you are executing your eternal purpose. So all of this, Father, we, we know that it's, it's as it speaks to Israel, we pray for them and that they will come to the knowledge of the truth as well. All this, Father, we're asking in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. 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 Amen.